and we'll read verse 7 and 8. little background, of course, all during the 42 chapters of Job, Job had some terrible things happen to him in his life. He had three friends that showed up and said some things to him about him and his relationship with God. They came to some conclusions that there had to be some problems with Job's life, or otherwise there's no way God would either let this stuff happen, allow it, or send it your way. And after all of the discussions back and forth between God, Job, and the three friends, when you boil it down at the end, this is the conclusion. The last chapter, verse 42. And this is what God says about the three friends who were telling things to Job that were false about God. Job 42, verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee. First of all, God's wrath is nothing to play around with. This is not just anger and he's not just upset. It's his wrath. Most humans don't live through God's wrath when it gets poured out. And against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. God's wrath was brought into the discussion here. And why? Because these three friends had said things to Job and painted a picture of God that was false. You may think, well, I mean, that happens to us every day. It happens in our culture all the time. What's the big deal? Biblically speaking, as we'll see here tonight, this is a big deal. We're never supposed to represent God falsely. And what does that mean? Well, what are some examples we have in our world today? Well, we have... We have entire churches today that are taking a vote in their congregations and to, to redefine, say, what the Bible calls sin, certain instances. And they are representing to the world by saying that this is no longer a sin or this is what we are going to call it. They're misrepresenting God. and that, That's just one example. We can do it in our daily lives with a co-worker, with a family member, a close friend. If they think of you as a Christian and if you purport to support something that God doesn't, if you make it seem as if God enjoys what I'm doing, and if he doesn't, if you're painting a false picture of how God looks at it, there can be some trouble. Verse 8, Therefore take, and he's still talking to those three friends, Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, And offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. Of course, in the Old Testament, offerings was always a way to try to cover sin, to deal with sin, to get back into a good relationship with God. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept. It had gotten to the point that God could not discuss with these three friends. He would not accept, according to that verse, it sure makes it sound like God would not accept even their, their repentance. It wouldn't, he wasn't going to take it from them. They had spoken to Job in his worst hour, in his in terrible pain, discomfort, emotional stress. He'd lost his kids, his property, money. It was the worst of the worst. And at his worst, these three friends come and they tell things about God to Job. And it wasn't true. Now, Job was 
had enough character and he knew enough about God that he comes to the right conclusion about God through all of this. He comes out of it thinking correctly about God. But God went back to these three friends. He didn't just let them walk away. He said, if you guys want to be accepted, go tell Job that, that I'm sorry, that you have him offer these sacrifices for you and I'll accept it. Look at uh, verse 8 here. For I will accept, of him I will accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job have. You learn something here about God. What, how serious is he about people, talking to other people, and misrepresenting God? Be very honest. This is a pet peeve of mine. I hate to be misrepresented. Or somebody, I'm just having a conversation with a neighbor. I might be joking around, and somebody else, a third party, hears it, and they walk away and think, "Well, John was mad." Or they misrepresent what was said, misrepresent what our discussion was even about. In God's eyes, he this stuff bothers him, and there's a reason. He's talking about people, as we'll see, that don't aren't reading their Bible, may don't even have the opportunity in past history that where the Bible was in front of them, and they need somebody in front of them to represent God accurately. You've all heard the phrase, the only Bible some people will read is your life. They may only make their conclusions about what God likes, what He is like, by looking at your life. That's a heavy responsibility, without doubt. And here in Job's time, these three friends are in huge trouble because it said there are two different times in those verses. You didn't speak about me that which was right. Let's go to a different example here. Go to Numbers chapter 20. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. Numbers chapter 20. Now, in Numbers chapter 20, this is the place where water comes out of the rock. Where Moses is leading the children of Israel in the desert. And believe me, it is desert. Now, this is not the first time that Moses took his rod and struck the rock. It's not the first time Moses even took his rod and struck something. If you remember back when they're in Egypt, and there's the ten plagues, the reason the water turned to blood in Egypt was because God told Moses, take that rod, go out, go to the Nile, and strike it. I mean, he wound up and he swung hard, and when he hit it, all the water in Egypt turned to blood. So there's a history with Moses and his rod and teaching the people that are watching. Because remember, in just let's take that example, that instance as an example. Nobody else heard God talk to Moses saying, take this rod and go hit the water. Everybody else is just looking at it with their eyes and there goes Moses, he's walking, he's pulling out his rod and he's swinging at the water. Their information is much lower. They're only viewing everything through Moses' actions. Same thing here. He's leading the people in the wilderness and he is going to hit this rock and actually, in, in Leviticus 17, he, he did it before. He hit the rock, and water came out, and the people saw that. This God that we serve, 
Moses that's following him, he all he has to do is hit this rock and all this water comes out for several million of us to drink and our animals. The people are learning about God by watching Moses. Numbers 20, verse 1. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, in the desert of Zin in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chided with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before us. And why have ye brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die there? Since last year, at almost this time, I cut these people just a little bit more slack. Not much, but they're screaming, they're complaining, they even gather themselves against Moses, the guy that has the rod and strikes waters, they separate, they turn to blood, those kind of things. They're out in this desert, this wilderness, and I've been there. It is hot. There is nothing. There is no color but the color of that back door. It's khaki. There's nothing but brown, so, brown sand, brown rocks, and hot air, and mountains of it for miles. When If our tour bus would have broke down, I was thinking if I can get to the water bottles in the front of this bus, I may last about 12 minutes. Everybody else will be dead as doornails. It felt that hot. The harshest landscape I've ever, I could even imagine. And these people are out there walking. And they got their kids, and their animals, their belongings, whatever that was. And when they get thirsty, they go to Moses and they chide him, the Bible says. Now look at verse 5. Wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. Now what has God said about this land that they're going to? This is his promised land. Or at least that's, this is part of it. And he has promised this to these people ever since the days of Abraham. We're many, many moons past Abraham here in our story. And they're saying this is an evil place. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. Wow. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod. Remember, this rod has history. And gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Here now ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Have you been reading carefully? A miracle just took place, an amazing one again. Rock, or water came out of a very 
dry rock. An amazing miracle. The people, their animals are watered. And what was God's response? He wasn't, he wasn't happy. He tells Moses, we got a problem here. You believed me not. Now, there's a reason for this. If you don't read your Bible carefully, there's one word in one verse and one word in the couple verses later that explain all of this. Verse 8, he commanded Moses to do what to the rock? He was just supposed to talk to it this time. He was supposed to speak to the rock. In verse 11, Moses lifted up his hand and he did what with his rod? He smote the rock. Now remember, the people that are watching this, were they present when God told Moses, speak to the rock? They were not there. Moses and Aaron went before the Lord, prostrate themselves, Lord help us out. God said, I want you to go take your rod, but just take it and go speak to that rock. They go out there. Now all the people are watching. Moses takes this rod and it sounds like a little bit the question he asked in verse 10. He's a little angry. Do we have to get water out of this rock again? The the people are chiding him. And what did the people see Moses do? He grabs a rock and probably very likely in anger, he hits the rock. So what did the people think about God? They're probably thinking, my goodness, God's mad. But he didn't tell Moses, go show them that I'm angry and beat on this rock. He was just supposed to talk to it. Now, we should probably pause here for a second. Because you think, well, I mean, why is this important? Well, the, your Bible paints pictures all the time. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, we learn something about this scenario. It tells us that in the wilderness, Moses led the people first through the Red Sea, and that was like a baptism. He then got water out of the capital R, rock. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that capital rock, that rock was Christ. Jesus has a lot of different names, a lot of different expressions. He's the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. And one example, but in this one, Paul is talking about he is the rock where, that gave them their water. What did Jesus say about himself? I am the living water. Part of this, it seems, was to prepare the people when the Messiah would come, he was going to, they would remember that he is like that rock that our forefathers were dying of thirst and they got water in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness, where there wasn't a drop of water. And Jesus was supposed to be that example, or this was an example of him. This is why God is taking this so serious. Now how serious do you say? Look at verse 12. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because you believe me not. Wait a minute. What didn't they believe? If God says you didn't, you believe me not, the question has to be asked. It should be simple. What didn't they believe? And I think the answer, they didn't believe every single word. Because God said, yes, get water out of the rock, but how? Talk to that sucker. There was an object lesson. The people were going to watch Moses talk to it just like they watched Moses crack the 
rod over that thing. God says, you didn't believe me. They didn't follow his instructions exactly. Comma, look at verse 12, to sanctify me in the eyes of the people. What did God want to accomplish? Or what does this mean to sanctify God in the eyes of the people? You see, those people didn't have a Bible or instruction book in front of them saying, okay, now the next verse, Moses, is going, he's going to pull this rod out. And then he's going to hit it. They didn't have a program. They didn't have a script. They're learning it on the fly. And Moses misrepresents God. God wasn't angry. He wanted Moses to just talk to the rock. But all they saw was our leader, who God does everything in his hand. He got mad and he took that thing and he hit it. It says he hit it twice. And because of that, it is a little strange. This was a serious thing to God. It says in verse 12 here, look at the last half of it, Therefore, you shall not bring this congregation where? Into the land which I have given them for generations upon generations. God's been making one promise. You seed of Abraham, you guys are going somewhere. I am going to lead you to the promised land. And Moses was that instrument. Ten plagues in Egypt. The sun went dark because of Moses. The waters turned to blood at the hand of Moses. Everything. But he screwed up this one time. And he didn't, what God says, sanctify God in their eyes. He was supposed to paint a picture for them. By the people just watching his actions, they were supposed to learn something about God. And when that failed... Look at what happens here. Moses, you're now not going in. It gets even a little bit worse than this. Look down at verse 22. The children of Israel, even the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came unto Mount Hor. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the coast of the land of Edom, saying, God's talking, Aaron shall be gathered unto his people. What's that Bible talk for? He's going to die. For he shall not enter into the land which I have given the children of Israel. Why? Because ye rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Now, here's the first thing. Jumped into my mind. Aaron didn't screw up. Moses I mean, I'd think, God, did you want him to tackle him when he pulled that rod back? The, the only, as far as I'm going to go in my conclusions publicly or to tell you is, leadership has consequences, doesn't it? It affects everybody around that person. It's why we, in all walks of life, we pick the leader of our school, the leader of our church, the leader of our country, the leader of our state. You better pick carefully. A lot of things come from leadership. Consequences. Aaron is dying. He can't. Go, not only can he go in, he's not even going to walk around in the wilderness anymore. He's done. And in the next five verses, God tells him, bring him up here to the mountain. And the whole congregation watches Aaron's son go up with Aaron and Moses. And God tells Moses, take his clothes off. They stripped him down and put those royal those robes of the priest off, took him off Aaron and put him on his son, and Aaron died right there. 
Now, the only reason I am belaboring, the only reason I'm really hitting this hard, I want to make an impression on you, the impression that the Bible seems to be trying to make. It's a big deal to God. It's a big deal to misrepresent Him. Remember what, all, what started all of this. God gave them an instruction. And even though the outcome was that they still got water, God didn't want them to think that that's how you always get water. You're not always just going to get mad, grab a stick or rod, and hit this rock, and water's going to come out. And my mind kind of runs in the New Testament where Luke 11, 22, 23, that whosoever shall speak unto this mountain, whosoever shall speak unto this mountain, believing when you pray, you shall have whatsoever you say. See, the Bible goes on to have a lot of things about speaking. And I don't know if exactly that's what God had in mind here, but there's some lesson that God wanted taught to the people. And Moses messed that up. It's hard to undo. It's hard to undo what you visually see. Those people probably to this day, they can see Moses hitting that thing. And for enough water to come out to feed three million people and their animals, I'm telling you, it wasn't a trickle. That water was gushing. And they open up these dams at these big lakes and the water comes rushing out behind it. Probably something similar to that. Aaron died because the guy that's in charge didn't follow God's instruction just the way God had told him. The Bible has a lot more to say about this event. Let's go to Deuteronomy, next book. Deuteronomy chapter 1. And remember what we just read. It said Aaron died because of the rebellion at the waters. So now God's introduced even the word rebellion about this. Deuteronomy chapter 1. And there is, uh, it, in verse 37, Moses is speaking here. He has, he has talked, he is recounting what has happened with uh, the spies that went into, into the promised land and when they came out. And, and Moses gets to this part of the story in verse 37. He said, Also the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, saying, Thou shalt not go in thither. He is recounting to the people why he is not going into the promised land. Now, pick apart the language very carefully in verse 37. Also, the Lord was angry. We know during that, that period, God was angry. Aaron died. God made a promise to Moses, you're not going in. Why was he angry? He was angry with me or Moses for whose sake? People, see there again you see what did God want back at that rock giving forth water? Was God trying to get a message to Moses? Was God trying to get a message to Aaron? I mean, he, he talks to those guys all the time. Who was God trying to get a visual message to? It was the people. Moses is saying that. He said, for your sakes... God was angry with me. What does that mean? Even though the people sinned at many different times, what he's saying here is it was for their sakes that they were to see this visual image of Moses speaking to the rock and water coming out. They were supposed to learn something about that. 
And again, he, he reiterates to Moses, you're not going in. Go to chapter 3, verse 23. Moses, again, he is still talking. Deuteronomy 3, 23, And I besought the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, Thou hast begun to show Thy servant Thy greatness and Thy mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to Thy works and according to Thy might. Moses is telling God how wonderful He is for the things He has done. I pray Thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain in Lebanon, But the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee, speak no more unto me of this matter. At this time, God finally tells Moses, Don't bring this up to me. You know what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to speak to that rock. And this is now the second, third, fourth time you've brought this up. You're not going into the promised land. This is the last time he tells him. And don't ask me again about it. We we almost, in all of the relationship we see with Moses and God, this is almost, almost the only contention there is. Moses followed God so well. It tells us he was the meekest man. God could lead him around so well. And we see the evidence of it. The miracles that followed Moses' ministry and his leadership. But that time, it must have been something serious to not let Moses go in. Look at verse 27. Get thee up into the top of Mount Pisgah and lift up thine eyes westward, northward, southward, and eastward and behold it with thine eyes. For thou shalt not go over this Jordan. Deuteronomy 32. He tells Moses, back then he's not going, and now in Deuteronomy 32, it's time for Moses to die. Deuteronomy 32, verse 49. Get thee up into this mountain, Abiram, unto Mount Nebo. So Mount Nebo is the smaller mount or hill on a, the very big mountain which is in the land of Moab that is over against Jericho. This was one of our favorite places when we were there. And just as this verse says, it's not in the land of Israel. If you are on the east side of Israel, there is the Dead Sea and there's the Jordan River from the north that flows down into it. And that's the border. On the east side of that border where Moses is, he can look across the Jordan River and over the Dead Sea. He can look across and see the mountains, the hills of Israel. And like it says here, down there in the bottom is Jericho. That's the first town you come to. That's why when Joshua goes in with the children of Israel, what's the first town they encounter? Jericho. They have to march around that sucker seven times. Standing there in what they think is Mount Nebo, we, we could see the, the, the small places where Jericho is. You can see everything that Moses would have seen then. That those mountains, they're, they're still the gray and the brown just sand and rock. There, there aren't massive towns, hillsides, roads, industry built. That There's not. It's still that wilderness. And Moses is, is taken up there by God. 
Look at the second half of verse 49. He wanted him to behold the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel for a possession, and die in the mount whither thou goest up. He's commanding Moses to go die. And remember what it says about Moses. When he died, he didn't die because he was old. And he didn't die because he was on his last breath or the strength just he had finally wore everything out and he was spent. Not at all. It tells us that his natural force hadn't abated. He was a strong cat still at 120. But it was time for the people to go where? To go in there. Except their leader is not allowed. So before that event can happen, before they go across, carrying the ark to go over the Jordan River, what has to happen? Come here, Moses. And he takes him up to Mount Nebo and he commands him, you go up there and you die. The Bible tells us that God buried Moses somewhere. We don't even know. Don't know exactly where. Look at verse uh, well, verse 50. And die in the mountain whither thou goest up and be gathered unto thy people as Aaron thy brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered unto his people. God even links his brother Aaron's death with his own. Look at verse 51. Because ye trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, because ye sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. Do you see how God, in writing this, what's the scenery that he includes about Moses' sin? He said, when you're in the midst of the people, they were all watching. They were all watching and I needed you to show them something. And people, in our world today, you know them as well as I, there are people that are not probably going to be reading their Bible tomorrow. But they will see you. And they may see me. And if we happen to be mowing our yard, cutting our hedge across from them, and something goes a little wrong, we pick up a rake and start beating against the edge of the house, or kicking our dog, screaming at it, those are mild, immature examples. But what they see, they may very well draw a conclusion about God. You know that verse in the Bible where it says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain? We all think what that means, don't swear. I'm not sure that's exactly what that means. If you're going to take his name, if people are going to look at you as a Christian, and they identify that person's a Christian, protect your witness. Don't take it in vain. Don't take the name Christian, but don't act like it, and then not act like a Christian. See, it's taking it in vain. You're calling yourself Christian, but the word vain means you're doing it and there's no actions following it. You take the name of the Lord in vain, you plaster a sign on you that says Christian, and then you go act like the world. And what does the rest of the world think about a Christian? They think, well, that person acts just like me. I guess I'm fine. I don't go to church, but I mean, that person goes to church. I can do what that person does. If they're okay with God, I'm okay with God. God, in these verses, in talking about Moses and Aaron dying, he mentions you were in the middle of the people and they were watching what you were doing. 
There's something else in here at the end of verse 51. Look, what, look at these phrases. It says, Because you sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. Now, think of that. Moses didn't sanctify God. Wait a minute. That, that seems backward to me. I thought God was supposed to sanctify me. And in a way of speaking, yes, that's true. When you get the New Testament, the language speaks of us being sanctified. Here, what this means is, Moses was supposed to sanctify God in the eyes of the people. What does that mean? That the people were supposed to think something about God. A, Moses' actions were supposed to cleanse God in their eyesight. So that when they looked at Moses, they thought, Huh, that's what God thinks. That's what God wants. And that was supposed to cleanse the people's thoughts toward God. Does that make sense? God got mad. Moses, you didn't sanctify me in their eyes. They now think something about me that isn't true. They think, hit that rock every time and that's how you get water. God wasn't trying to teach them that that day. And this phrase, sanctify me in the eyes of the people. There's an Old Testament idea here. Turn with me to Ezekiel. Let's expand this idea of sanctifying God in the eyes of people. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 41. Well, there, let's see, Ezekiel chapter 20 and there is verse 41. God is talking about bringing them back in Israel, the nation. He says, I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein you have been scattered and I will, sanctif- I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. Does that make sense now? When God regathers Israelites, and after almost 2,000 years there was no nation, and yet now, 1948, they're all back there, what is that supposed to do to the heathen world watching? Heathen world is supposed to be thinking something about God. That event, them watching with their own eyes, God regathering all them, it's supposed to sanctify God in the eyes of the heathen. All the people that don't know God, they don't read their Bible, they're not going to find, they're not going to know God except they are figuring something out about Him. He's made this promise for two, three thousand years and it's coming to pass. He's bringing all these people back to their home country. This miracle, it's happening right in front of us. And that event is supposed to cause what to happen in the minds of the heathen. My goodness. God's word is true. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 verse 22. Ezekiel 36. Therefore, 
Say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes. God didn't bring them back because all of a sudden they were acting holy. That is not why Israel has been reconstituted over there. They're all being brought from Russia, from Brazil, from America, Europe, Africa, all these different places. God is doing it because of His name. He wants to preserve the idea in the world that the God of the Bible, He means what He says. It has nothing to do with those people being ready to go back, being holy enough to go back, to be uh, believers or even close to God in spirit. It's not even what it's about yet. He says right here in verse 22, I'm not doing it for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy namesake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. Now, now we're learning that God's name was not sanctified, it was profaned by what event? What caused the world to think that God of the Bible may not be all that what he's cracked up. I mean, maybe he's not even out there. It says when they went into all the countries, when the Romans came and God pulled his hand back from them and they were destroyed and they were crushed and they were persecuted and sent throughout all the world. When those Jewish people came into those countries, the eyes of the heathen looked at them and thought... These are the people that God was going to take care of. These are the people that God has a covenant with. And look, look how raggedy they are. Look at, they don't even have a homeland. They have nothing. Who would want to serve a God where that ends up as your lot? That event of them losing everything because they rejected Christ and they were sent throughout all the earth, according to this verse and many other here in Ezekiel and Isaiah, it profaned the name of the Lord. God did not receive any good marks with the heathen by the heathen looking at his people dragging in rags to their shores. Does that make sense? And now he's saying, after about 2,000 years, when they all come back, I'm going to sanctify my name. The heathen nations are going to realize this, is un- this, this has to be God. There has to be a God of the Hebrews to somehow not just keep these people alive, which is a miracle. Keep their culture. He's reconstituting them. He's getting them back into their land in Israel. Verse 23. I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. There you have that idea again. The rest of the world watching Israel, they're now supposed to think certain thoughts about God. They don't read his Bible, they're not going to learn it that way. But they can learn something. This God, he's true. It couldn't happen any other way. There must be the God of the Bible that's bringing them back just like He promised in Ezekiel, just like He promised in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, all these different places. And He said it 3,000 years ago, and they're back. Sanctifying God in the eyes of the people. Just by watching events. Sanctifying in their eyes. 
If I am to be sanctified in the eyes of my children, and that word sanctified means to cleanse, to... <clears throat> you know what it means. I need to have my children see me do something so that they draw a certain conclusion. If they see me raise a hand to their mother, they're going to draw a certain conclusion. That would not be a way for me to sanctify myself in their eyes. See, that phrase is talking about what goes on in their mind. And the rest of the world is supposed to have this example by watching all of Israel go back on boats and planes be reconstituted over there. And not just that, but it starts to flourish. The whole land starts to produce what it wasn't producing. The animals even come back. These verses say, when that stuff starts to happen, the whole world, the heathen, is supposed to understand something about God. He's going to be sanctified by watching them. And again, he's not doing it because those people are necessarily spiritual or holy. Yet. That stuff is coming. But just this idea. I wanted, wanted to go to that, I, that, that thought here. To expand this idea. People come to conclusions about God by what they see in the world. Right or wrong. Many times they get the wrong conclusion because we have human beings that take the name of Christ and sometimes we don't always do what's right. I mean, remember that there are people watching. You think, no, nobody knows me. I live in a town of 300 people or 1,500. How many people even know me? Those kind of thoughts, that's probably what the enemy wants you to be thinking. There are people that know who you are. That know that you take the name of Christ. They know that you're serious about the Bible. That we take seriously what this stuff says. And it makes a difference in our actions. People think certain things about God by watching the people that they deem as That person's a Christian. Then such and such must be okay. Then such activity must be what God wants. And I'm telling you, in God's eyes, that's a big deal. Jesus told the Pharisees this. He said, you guys travel the whole earth to make one proselyte a follower. And he said, you guys make them two-fold child of hell that you yourself are. Now think about that. <clears throat> the Pharisees were looked at by the people as, well, those people know God. I mean, they must know who God is. They, they're trying to follow this law through every possible small command. They even added to it, which they weren't supposed to do. And Jesus is saying that the people that followed those Pharisees, where were they going to end up? They were going to be twice as qualified for hell as the Pharisees were. Which means the Pharisees were going to hell. You can't read that any other way. That's just a, that's a, that's a New Testament example of leadership. Of people looking, in that example, they looked at the Pharisees and they're saying, those people are going to heaven, we've got to do what they do to get to heaven. And what Jesus is pointing out, you people are not sanctifying God in the eyes of the people. The people that are following you, the next verse Jesus says, you're the blind leading the blind. People that are following you, they're going off the cliff right after you. It makes a big 
difference. Maybe the, the title of this should be that we're all in position of leadership. <clears throat> you really are. If you take the name of Christ, you are in a position of leadership because somebody's watching. Somebody's watching and they're drawing a conclusion about God. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would go with each and every one of us this week, that you would show yourself strong in our behalf. Pray, Lord, that you would open the windows of heaven to each one of us and to Pastor and Tiff, that you grant these people the desires of their heart, that you fill their homes with love, joy, peace, health, and laughter. Father, we thank you for for sending us Pastor and Tiff, the best leadership we could possibly have. And we thank you, Lord, for everything that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.